The following program is recorded content created by the Truth Network. So what is the purpose of prophecy in the New Testament? How does it apply to us today? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, biblical scholar and cultural commentator, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity. Call 866-34-TRUTH to get on The Line of Fire. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to The Line of Fire. We are here to infuse you with faith and truth and courage. We're here to dig into the Word together and to equip you to take your stand for the Lord. Welcome again to the broadcast. Michael Brown, delighted to be with you. Here's the phone number to call if you agree with me or disagree. If you have a question, if you have a comment, 866-34-TRUTH. If it's on topic, we'll get to your calls earlier. If it's off topic, we'll try to get to them later in the show. 866-348-7884. I have taught on the subject of prophecy and prophets in the Bible for many years, going back to the early 1980s. And I have written a commentary on Jeremiah. I'm writing a commentary. It's on the back burner now because of other projects, but writing a commentary on Isaiah. I've had a great interest in prophetic literature over the decades and have often carried a burden, a burning heart to see repentance a burden to see America revived lest we perish, a burden that many of you also carry that is a prophetic kind of burden. In other words, you read the words of the prophets and you feel that same pain and you pray and you groan and you want to raise your voice and shout to the world. I know many of you feel that same way. So the the subject of, of prophecy in the Bible has been of interest to me for many years and is something that I carry in my own heart in terms of how I relate to this world. Not only so, but personal prophecy, one of the aspects of New Testament prophecy has been of interest to me, coming to faith in a Pentecostal church and then for some years rejecting those things for today, then becoming convinced scripturally they were for today, then seeing some beautiful, wonderful manifestations of prophecy over the decades and then seeing some abuses over the decades, these things remain of perennial interest to me. So because a question has been raised to me recently, I'm I'm meant to address it on yesterday's broadcast and then I never got back to it. Because the question of prophecy is really swirling today and a very specific question has been addressed to me, I thought let's take some time and not just talk about specifics of prophets today or so-called prophets today or true prophecy or false prophecy today what about the Trump prophets? And what if, what if it's proven that Trump won the election and there was fraud? Then would the prophets be proven true? Would I have to apologize for, for calling them to repent for getting it wrong in such a public way? So we'll tackle those issues. But I want to look at a larger issue first and say, okay, according to the New Testament, what was the purpose of the New Testament prophecy? So as I've taught on it, from years past, just taking from an outline that I used, oh, going back, like I said, to the, to the early to mid-80s. Here are the purposes of New Testament prophetic ministry. So one is what you'd call prophetic preaching. Prophetic preaching. That's the first. By that, I mean when someone is anointed by God to bring a very specific targeted word from God that cuts to the heart 
and brings about transformation. You might call it apostolic preaching if you like, but it is not just another sermon or another message. It is like Acts 2, where Peter preaches under the unction and empowerment of the Spirit. And when he does, boom, the arrows pierce the heart. There's massive repentance, and 3,000 are added to the body that day. Or here's a message just in the midst of, you know, Stephen speaking in Acts 7, right? Empowered by the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, bringing a rebuke to the nation as the prophets did of old, and then stoned to death in a moment for his preaching. That, to me, is prophetic preaching in the same spirit, the the same spiritual genre as the prophets of the Old Testament. A second second aspect of of New Testament prophetic ministry, and these are not all in, in order of where they occur or priority, just as listed. The second is revelation. So miraculous words of knowledge where information is given, where someone sees something that, that was not available to the naked eye. Uh, you know, uh, Paul talks about uh, when he's writing to the Colossians and seeing the order in which they are uh, conducting themselves, seeing that in, in the spirit. Or, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says that he will be present with them in spirit. There, that's, that's not prophecy there as much as just the, the reality of the spiritual realm. So when Jesus tells Nathaniel in John 1, I saw you under the fig tree, he, he saw him in the spirit. He saw him prophetically. So this is part of prophetic ministry in the New Testament, revealing information that wasn't there or known to others. And there are countless examples of that, things I've witnessed with my own eyes, things at times I've been used in, uh, but otherwise stories I've heard firsthand from people where there is this supernatural revelation, information. A third is prediction. Prediction. So, for example, in Acts, the 11th chapter, Agabus predicts a famine that's coming. In Acts 21, he predicts Paul being arrested in Jerusalem. So, prediction. So, some, some hear prophecy and they only think prediction. Well, prediction is part, but it's not all. All right. And then uh, warnings. Stop signs, rebukers. So the prophetic word comes to say, you're heading in the wrong direction. Turn back, turn back. Now that's often just done with the word of God, making application from the word of God to a situation. But there are times when there's a special unction in it. You know, for, for example, Peter's warning uh, to Simon the sorcerer in Acts the eighth chapter, that's, that's a prophetic warning. That's a prophetic warning. That's a prophetic rebuke there. Um, another based on 1 Corinthians 14, 3, that prophecy is for edification, exhortation, and consolation. I can think of examples where you have a word for someone, you don't even know the significance of it, next thing the person is weeping and weeping and weeping because that that word touched something very deep in them or, or they were in such pain over a loss and that word spoke directly to it. Or just a truthful word of God being with his people, a word of encouragement. So that's another function. Direction, as in Acts 13, 1 through 3, where the Spirit speaks, separate me, uh, Barnabas and Saul, for the work I've called them to. 
So here's the Holy Spirit speaking. That's a prophetic word, prophetic direction, speaking that. Uh, and then laying foundations with apostles, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 28 and following, and Ephesians 2, 19 and following, that, that prophets can be used by God with apostles to lay church foundations. Now, let me be as explicit as I can. I do not believe that every church needs to be under, quote, an apostle. I do not believe every church needs to be under an apostle or prophet. I do not believe every church needs to be able to identify, that's my apostle, that's my prophet. If, if that is an alleged characteristic of NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, that is yet another aspect of so-called NAR that I differ with. At the same time, I do believe that there are people with an apostolic and prophetic calling that can work together to help lay strong foundations for the local church. Uh, then personal prophecy. Jesus has personal prophecies over Simon, right? He prophesies over him and, and his, his name is now going to be Peter, right? Uh, so Shimon Kepha, Kepha in Aramaic and Petros in Greek. Then he prophesies to him that he's going to be uh, sifted by Satan. Satan's going to try to destroy him. And then, that's, that's right before his, his crucifixion, then after his resurrection, he prophesies about Peter's death. So personal prophecy, very greatly used there. And then you have, again, examples like Agabus prophesying personally over Paul. Uh, prophetic Presbytery. Uh, Paul writes about it in 1 Timothy 4.14. 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul talks about Timothy receiving a gift through the laying on of hands and, and, and talks to him about the prophecies that were spoken over him, also in 1 Timothy 1.18. So it, installing someone into ministry, installing them for office, laying hands on them together and speaking a prophetic word or prophetic words that now become very valuable for Timothy's life where he contends for the faith. He contends for the gospel. God called him to do this. God spoke this over him. Lord, bring that to pass. Bring your words to pass. So that's another confirmation that you're called to, to make a surprising move. You're called to quit your job and move to another state and serve a missions organization there. You believe it's the Lord. You've shared it with your family. They trust you, but they're a little uneasy. And then you get three texts in the next two hours from people who don't know anything about this and say, hey, I, I, I just see you being called by God to work with missions. And someone else says, I, I see the Lord calling you to leave your job soon. And then someone else says, I see you called to go to a particular state. Oh, yeah, these things happen. Happen to friends of mine. That happened at different levels in my own life where it's, you're, you're laughing with joy. Praise God. What glorious confirmation. Uh, discerning of times and seasons. Discerning of times and seasons in the same spirit of First Chronicles 12, 32, that the sons of Issachar understood the times and knew what Israel should do. Uh, I, I look at men like Francis Schaeffer and Charles Colson, who are not doing this so much as charismatics, but who understood the times and were speaking to them with prophetic accuracy. We, we seek to understand the times on this broadcast and to be your voice for moral sanity and spiritual clarity one reason, one way by understanding where the world is going and sounding the alarm and, and helping us navigate our, our way 
And again, the prophetic spirit is given broadly to God's people to be used in many, many different ways. Pronouncing judgments that, you know, for example, Acts 13, Paul speaks to Elymas, the sorcerer, and, and, and speaks of, of, of judgment on him for his resisting of the gospel. Uh, conviction of sin, 1 Corinthians 14, 24, that if every, 24 and 25, if everyone brings a prophetic word and someone comes into the meeting, the secrets of their heart are laid bare. Their sins revealed, they fall on their face and worship God. And then lastly, rocking the boat, stirring things up, not, not to stir them up, but as a result of obedience to God, bring your word that shakes things. All of these are aspects of prophetic ministry in the New Testament, and I believe every one of them applies on some level to this day. We'll be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on the Line of Fire. Michael Brown here. You know, it's a great joy when I go and speak at a congregation, and I'm able to meet some folks afterwards sometimes at the book table, uh, and they'll come up to me and they'll say, I, I drove four hours my wife and I drove four hours to be here with you this weekend. Or, oh, we heard you were coming, so we, we came over. We live a half hour away, but we, we go somewhere else. But we just came for this day. And I'll ask, go, how did you know? Oh, we got your email. So I, I love that when we're able to notify you when I'm coming into an area. Uh, and, and this way you get, a, you get an email, and it just, just goes to the people in that general area that are following us. And sometimes, you know, from distant areas, they'll come anyways, gives us an opportunity to see each other. But to make sure you don't miss that, get our emails, askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Just sign up for that. And we've got a neat mini book, an ebook on how to pray for America. We want to send you as well. So get those emails. All right. 866-348-7884. If you have a question for me or a comment, something you want to ask me about, talk about, like you would on a Friday, that's completely off the topic of New Testament prophecy, that's great. That's fine, because I will take some calls a little later, but now's the time to call, and then we can get your calls in a bit. So why do I say that prophecy is still for today? Because the New Testament tells me it is. That's, that's my primary reason. My secondary reason is that I've seen it with my own eyes in undeniable ways. But my primary reason, the, the, the vast bulk of weight I put on what Scripture says, and the fact that it's confirmed by experience is beautiful, but that's secondary to what the witness of Scripture says, right? So in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit's poured out and 120 are now speaking new languages and the, the crowd hearing some thinking they're drunk, others hearing the praises of God in their, own, uh, in their own language. So Peter gets up, and he says, hey, these men are not drunk, as, as some of you think. It's just the third hour in the day. It's just nine in the morning. But this is what Joel spoke. So he's now going to quote from Joel 2.28 following. If you're reading it in Hebrew, it starts in the third chapter, but same verses, right? Peter adds in the words, not found in 
in the Hebrew, not found in the Greek Septuagint, in the last days, he adds those words in to say, these last days in which we live, these last days from now until the, the return of the Messiah, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and daughters will prophesy and your young men will dream dreams, excuse me, your, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions and upon all flesh, right? Servants, handmaidens, I'm going to pour out my spirit and they'll prophesy. So when is that for? That's for the last days on whom? On everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And then Peter preaches his whole sermon and then calls for repentance. And when the people say, what do we do? Repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus, every one of you for the forgiveness of sins. And Acts 2.39, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God will call. So here we have the outpouring of the Spirit for this period called the last days from the death and resurrection of Jesus until his return. And it's reaffirmed numerous times in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Those who repent and believe will receive the Spirit and sons and daughters, male servants, female servants, not just an elite few, they will prophesy. So that's, that's pretty clear. Now you get to Paul's explicit teaching on it in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 with the, the love chapter in the middle of it and everything operates through love. The gifts, etc., operate through love. So we get there and, and he lays out the gifts, but then he says earnestly, desire the gifts, especially prophecy, especially prophecy. Now, all of you who are word, word-loving people, word-based people, please show me where he ever says until a certain time, then stop. Oh, 1 Corinthians 13, he does when Jesus returns, right? We know in part, we prophesy in part, right? So, so we, we have these things in part. When, when Jesus returns, then we'll see him face to face. Then we'll know God even as we are known. Until then, not until the complete of the, the, can, the canonization of Scripture, the thought's nowhere in Paul's mind, 1 Corinthians 13, as he's writing it. Absolutely not. And it, was, it wasn't even a concept he was thinking of at that point. But, but not, on, not only so, the fact is we still have disagreements. We're still debating these things. So obviously we don't know as we are known. We don't see face to face, obviously. So th- there's faith, love, knowledge, Right. Uh, and, and we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when he returns, when the perfect comes, then it won't be in part anymore. And then we won't need prophecy. And in the world to come, we won't need faith and our knowledge will be complete. Until then, we're to pursue the gifts. Show me in the Bible. Here, I'll show you in the Bible where it says pursue the gifts, especially prophecy. Please show me where it says don't pursue them. They're not for today. It's not there. If the word is your guide, if the word is the final authority, then we should be pursuing earnestly the gift of prophecy to this day, to this day, to this moment. You see, that's adding to the Bible. It wasn't adding to the Bible when they prophesied in the New Testament. How many prophetic words were delivered in Corinth and elsewhere? There could have been thousands, hundreds of thousands of prophetic words delivered in the early church. I mean, we read about the gifts of the Spirit and these things for centuries after, and exorcisms and prophecies and things like that, and healings. So, no one was worried about being added to the Bible because it's not adding to the Bible. If, if I come up to you and say, the Lord spoke to me to tell you 
that that terrible injury that you got in that car wreck 10 years ago, you're a total stranger, I don't know you, but and I feel impressed by the Lord to do this. That terrible injury you got in that car wreck 10 years ago, God's about to heal you. Look to him, put your trust in him. And you're like, who are you? It's like, hey, I don't know you, but the Lord laid that on my heart to tell you. Did I add to the Bible? No. Of course, I didn't add to the Bible. That's not adding to the Bible. Oh, and now, in addition to that, everyone must believe that. No, we're not adding to the Bible. It's a word that God speaks to someone. It's not the word of God. It's not the Bible. But that's understood in the early church because there are all these prophecies, and they were not being added to the Bible. They were not becoming part of the Bible or part of the New Testament. Of course not. They were not the word binding on all people. They were a word to be tested. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, now, don't quench the spirit. Don't put out the spirit's fire. Don't despise prophecies. Test everything. Hold to the good. He doesn't say, now, while you have these things temporarily. No, no, no. This is a guideline. This is a guideline. So the New Testament tells me explicitly that these things are for today until the end of the age, right? Till Jesus returns, explicitly lays that out and explicitly tells me to earnestly pursue the gifts, especially prophecy. So who am I to listen to a church tradition or to some other teacher who contradicts the Bible? With all respect, I'm going to stay with the word. So even if I never saw this in operation, I would believe it's for today and I would question, where is it? But by God's grace, I've seen it in operation many, many beautiful and wonderful times. And, and when I was writing the book, Playing with Holy Fire, came out a few years ago, dealing with a lot of the serious abuses in the charismatic Pentecostal movement, of which I am a part, and calling these abuses out with a chapter on unaccountable prophecy and a chapter on mercenary prophets, as I was calling these things out, I was also giving examples of the true. And the more examples that I was reminded of, and many of them I was an eyewitness to or, or knew the accounts uh, first or second hand, you know, reliable witnesses, I was edified by, wow, these some amazing, beautiful things are happening. Okay, question I was asked, what if somehow it's demonstrated at this late date that there was actually election fraud and it's actually demonstrated that Trump won? Would I now apologize for calling out those who prophesied Trump's victory and when it didn't happen saying you need to apologize and you need to understand how you got it wrong and do some serious soul searching? Would I have? No, no, of course not. Because the prophecies were that Trump would be in office. The, the prophecies were not that Trump would theoretically win an election, but it would be stolen. Why didn't the prophets get the information? Why didn't God tell them, yeah, he's going to win numerically, but it's going to be stolen and, and Joe Biden will be inaugurated and will be the sitting president. We don't care who theoretically was going to win if the thing's going to be stolen, right? It, Lord, are you really sending me that car? I believe you promised me a car so I could get to work. Are you sending me that car? Yes, I am sending you that car. By the way, when it was a block away from you, someone hijacked it and drove off with it, but I'm not going to tell you that part and you'll never get it. No, of course not. And there were prophets explicitly saying, explicitly saying, Donald Trump will serve eight consecutive years. Donald Trump will be inaugurated in January. Donald, and telling us, you watch, this state's going to turn, this state's going to turn, that state's going to turn, and none of it happened. None of those specific words came to pass. So no, nothing changed. I covered that months and months ago. What if there was fraud? What if the elections were stolen? What if that's what's really happened? And, and therefore Trump did win and the prophets were right. They didn't just say win. They said he'd be in office. 
They said Biden would never sit. I mean, look, I, I, I watched clips that were sent to me in context with people guaranteeing Joe Biden will never serve a day in the White House. Donald Trump. And then when it didn't happen, well, Donald Trump is the real president in heaven. And it's, come on, friends. You know the reproach that that has brought to the name of Jesus? Do you realize the amount of ridicule that that brought to the things of the Spirit? Do you know how many people's faith was, was shaken over that? So let us not look for another cop-out. Let's be responsible. If we're going to claim to speak on behalf of the Lord, whether it's teaching the Bible or delivering prophecy, let's be responsible people. These are serious matters. We will be right back. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Line of Fire. I want to go to some calls shortly. 866-348-7884. So like we do on Fridays, any question of any kind that you want to talk to me about, or if you want to weigh in on something I've said, agree or differ, by all means, give us a call. Phone lines are open now, 866-34-TRUTH. Before we do that, I want to focus on something very important. I have been reading and hearing more and more about the plague of fentanyl-related deaths in America. I knew it was growing. I knew it was becoming epidemic. I knew that people were accidentally overdosing on fentanyl, hearing some personal anecdotes that were just gut-wrenching. And, and I've, I've leaned into it at times. By lean into it, I mean, I'll, I'll study it more about it. I'll get more data on it. And open my heart, Lord, do you want me to say something about it? Do you want, want me to add my voice? Do you want me to write something about it? And it was, it was last night that I got an email from a colleague who lost his grandson to an accidental fentanyl overdose. He thought he was taking a prescription pill for pain and ended up dead, his parents finding him. I mean, who can imagine the pain of that? He was just a teenager. And what I was not aware of was that May 10th is National Fentanyl Awareness Day. So I want to play this clip for you. It's from a dad who lost his son. He's telling his story. I want you to hear what he had to say. And then I want to just share a little bit with you about this and point you to some sites where you can get involved to make a difference. Let's listen. They say there's no greater pain than a parent losing a child. I can verify that as I lost my 18-year-old son to a counterfeit prescription pill laced with a fatal amount of fentanyl. If you're not aware of the fentanyl epidemic that's taken over 70,000 lives in 2021, and is projected to possibly double in 2022, you're watching this video at the right place and at the right time. Fentanyl is now the number one killer of people ages 18 to 45 years old. What's worse 
is the drug cartels are disguising it in what appears to be legitimate prescription drugs, such as Xanax, Percocet, Adderall, and Oxycodone. And this emerging crisis is only getting worse as drug dealers are using cryptic messages on social networks like Snapchat, TikTok, and Instagram to push these counterfeit pills. It's exactly how my son obtained what he thought was a painkiller that was going to help his injured shoulder. But sadly, it was laced with enough fentanyl to take his life. My family experienced the most tragic nightmare to find him in his room deceased at three o'clock on a beautiful Sunday afternoon. I'm sharing this story because I don't want you to experience such a tragic nightmare like my family did. So here's the bottom line. 45% of kids will experiment with the drug by the time they reach 12th grade. The Drug Enforcement Agency has confirmed that four out of 10 seized pills in 2021 contained enough fentanyl to kill. If they don't die of the poison, in these pills, it will leave them brain damaged or on life support. Experimentation with counterfeit prescription pills is like playing Russian roulette with five bullets and a six shot revolver. I didn't know anything about counterfeit pills laced with fentanyl and how easy they were to get and what a national crisis it is. Had I known, I would have had those talks to save my son, Chase, and his beautiful life, but I never got that chance. Today is National Fentanyl Awareness Day. Please, I'm urging you to talk to your kids about the dangers of fake prescription pills laced with fentanyl. And please, make every day to be an awareness day. Thank you. All right, onepillkilled.org, onepillkilled.org. Stop there today, get information, see what you can do to make a difference. Just being aware, being aware and alert. Look, you may be really strung out and thinking, well, I, I need pain pills and I can't get them from my doctor. I can get them in black market. It's a bad move to make, number one, but it could be a deadly move to make today. So in other words, this is not you, you go to your pharmacy and you get a drug from the pharmacy and it's somehow laced with fentanyl. It's, it's drugs that you're not going to get at the pharmacy. Or friends say, oh, I, I got some extra painkillers. I, I got, yeah, can't tell where I got them. But yeah, yeah, take one. That may be the last thing that they do. So onepillkilled.org. Just a few stats, just a few stats. So people dying of automobile accidents between 18 and 45. People dying of suicide. People die of COVID. Nope. By far, by far, deaths by fentanyl overdose outpace them. Any one of those, by far. Here's a, here's a note. In 2019, PolitiFact West Virginia gave a mostly true rating to the statement that, quote, just two weeks ago, Customs and Border Protection seized enough fentanyl to kill every person in West Virginia 32 times over. Remember, what's behind this is greed. Greed Greed, greed, literally killing people. Also, as I was reading up about this, 
as a former drug user myself, you know, my, my story, I was, I was shooting heroin at the age of 15, getting high at 14, LSD at 14, shooting speed, heroin, 15, cocaine at 16, and getting radically, dramatically, wonderfully saved. And I experimented. I was crazy. You know, just having fun. I was a kid. See how much drugs I, I, I could do. I would literally do as much as I could of an hallucinogenic drug to see how far I could go without like flipping out, losing my mind. Just having fun, challenging, pushing to the edge as a, as a foolish teenager. If I played around with one of these drugs, I'd, I'd be dead in the spot. Why? Listen to this. Fentanyl is a powerful synthetic opioid that is similar to morphine, but is 50 to 100 times more potent. 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine. So go to onepillkilled.org and find out what you can do. These are not statistics. These are people we're talking about. When I heard from a grandfather last night saying, Dr. Brown, you have a loud, clear voice on cultural social issues. Would you speak to this? I said, yeah, it's, it's definitely time. I'll do it. You can also read an article about this with links and links to the video that we just played at AskDrBrown.org. The, the article is entitled, Fentanyl is Killing Our Young People. And if you have a fentanyl-related story, a, a tragedy, and you want to warn us to sound the alarm, by all means, give us a call, 866-348-7884. All right, we're going to switch gears now. But please take these things to heart. Please take these things to heart. We're going to switch gears and go to the phones on a whole assortment of different topics. And we're going to start with uh, Trevor in Corona, California. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, Dr. Brown. So I have a question about uh, linguistic precedent and how many uh, counterexamples to a linguistic precedent you need to overturn that linguistic precedent. So if you have like five examples or eight examples of a linguistic precedent in Hebrew, but then you have two counterexamples. Is that enough to say, oh, there's not really any linguistic precedent here at all? Or can you still stand on the, the five to eight examples as a good linguistic precedent? It's going to be like anything else. In other words, forget Hebrew, forget linguistic precedent. The principle is what establishes a rule? And at what point is it something an exception to the rule? And at what point does something challenge the rule, right? You know, mm -hmm. at, at what point can you say, okay, this is, this is a rule, and when something comes outside of that rule, then it is clearly anomalous. It's, it's the exception that proves the rule, as opposed to saying this questions whether it's really a rule or not. So, for example, when I was studying the, the root Rafa in the, in, in the Hebrew language, and then did it occur in other Semitic languages, I found that in Syriac, there is one attestation of it in one of the writings of the church fathers. So in the lexicons, it was listed as in Syriac, it means heal, but there's only one reference. Now, we know that in Aramaic, a different word became the primary root for, for healing, the, the root asa, and asha would be a physician. So we know that, and then that works its way through various forms of Aramaic, Syriac, etc. So when I looked at this, and I found that in all of the vast amount of ancient Syriac literature, which was known and documented, this only occurred once, then you called it a nonce word. In other words, it's, it's, it's like 
a highly educated play on words that someone would get with linguistic knowledge, but not evidence of what actually went on in that language. Because you've got a mountain over here saying it didn't exist and only one example, right? Now, with ancient Hebrew, it's a little different because the corpus is not as big, right? We, we don't have as many words that are used. We don't have as much documentation. So it's a little harder to say. So if I've got five or six examples where there seems to be a precedent and two or three questioning it, no, I don't, I don't have a precedent yet in my mind. And unless we have outside confirmation that it seems to be more like this, but it could also be like this. If I have 50 or 60 examples uh, of, of something consistently or 20 or 30 and just one that's different, I would say that that one is anomalous. That one is just the exception to the rule. And it's 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 a matter of seeing how fixed the thing comes. That's the other thing. Does it become more fixed after the Hebrew of the Bible? Can we see that it does become a precedent? Well, in this case, we saw how it was developing when it became the norm and then got fixed. So those are the ways that you evaluate it, if, if that makes sense to you. Yes, sir. So the last thing you mentioned was after the Hebrew of the Bible, if, we, if it becomes more of a precedent. That is clear in the case I'm talking about, or I think it's clear. But is that how strong does that weigh into what the Hebrew of the Bible might have meant? Right. So what we have to do is look at it diachronically. We have to look back at it historically. We have to see, okay, to the best of our knowledge, how did this develop? And, and then we could say, ah, so if we seem to have more exceptions, when you go back further, that means it was probably developing at that time and becoming more and more fixed. And then later it became the absolute norm, like spelling changes. They'll happen in English gradually then become fixed. Hey, stay there. I've got a quick question for you on the other side of the break. Then we've got some prophecy questions we'll come to. Stay right here. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get on the Line of Fire by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us on the Line of Fire, 866-34-TRUTH. All right, before I go to the other calls, Trevor, uh, if you can concisely explain, what was the, the precedent that you were looking at? Yes, sir. So the word is uh, the word Zara in Genesis 3 no, 315. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jack Collins argues that every time the word Zara is used with a plural pronoun, it refers to posterity, that is, multiple descendants. And every time it's referred to as a singular pronoun, it refers to just one future descendant. In Genesis 315, it's referring to a, uh, it has a singular pronoun. So people say this singular pronoun indicates it's referring to one future descendant, that is Jesus Christ. And that's why they call Genesis 315 the Proto Evangelion. But John Walton says that there are counterexamples, namely Genesis 22:17 and 22:60, where Zara is clearly referring to multiple future descendants, but it's used alongside a singular pronoun. Yeah, and so he says that makes it. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I agree with John Walton on on that because Zara itself uh, is is commonly used as a collective noun. So uh, to, to say a single offspring, it could be meant by that. But Zara itself, uh, so if you say Zaro, his seed, or Zaracha, your seed, it, it's referring to posterity normally taken as plural, 
just that the word itself is a collective noun. It could be used in a singular way, uh, but unless it was, you didn't really have to hyper-specify that. So I, I agree with John Walton on that, and I, I have studied that in depth my, myself, just the larger question of the usage of, of Zara. But thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. So I'm, I'm with John Walton on that one. All right, let's go to Joshua in St. Cloud, Florida. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for taking my call. Sure thing. Um, um, I, uh, <laughs> I I just realized you translated my name. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, that's a... Uh, that's a, that's a good thing since you know Hebrew. <laughs> well, um, it's just it's on I the have, screen as as J O S U E. If it was H U A, I would have said Joshua, but I didn't know. Yeah. Anyway, either way, welcome. Sorry. Anyways, never mind that. Um, I have two questions if I can ask, and um, they're kind of connected to one another. Um, and uh, I just want you to know that um, I was raised in the Pentecostal churches, classic Pentecostal. I'm going to tell you, you were raised for 27 years, and you're now Lutheran. How do I know that? Yeah. Not, not by revelation, <laughs> but the fact that I'm going to answer your questions on Friday, your Twitter questions. So I, 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 we just recorded that right before the broadcast, and the spelling of the oh. name, yeah, so I, I happen to remember it. But I, I actually answered your question uh, in terms of this, is, is saying these should be normative today, is that an undue burden? So how, how about that you just tune in on Friday because I know that, that I'll answer your question. If, if you have a follow-up question, feel free to follow. We, we won't count that you call today against you. You can call right in and, oh. with a follow-up question. Is that fair? Yeah, certainly. All right. Let's, let's do that then. O only because I answered and, and tried to get into some depth when I answered. Uh, so if, uh, if there's a follow-up question, if my answer leads to another one, then normally we don't at, we don't let folks call within a few weeks of, of it. We'll, we'll we'll put you to the front of the line. All right. Hey, thanks, man. I, I look forward to talking. But I know I, I just we recorded this right before right before the broadcast. So the moment I saw the name and heard your question, yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. We we will interact further. God bless you. All right. Let us go to Greg in Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. The question I have is is regarding prophecy. Um, how are you able to uh, to check or you know test the validity of a prophecy uh, without having to wait till it actually has ended in fruition or it came to an end? The prophecy, is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So let's say someone has a word for you that uh, X Y Z is going to happen in your future. How do you test it? Well. One thing is, was there anything about it that itself was unscriptural? Was there anything in the prophecy that was contrary to the Bible or spoke about God in false ways? If that's the case, you throw it out. Another question would be, did it give you inaccurate information about the present? Uh, did, did the prophecy say, you know, I, I, the Lord says, I saw you Tuesday morning weeping in your car as you were praying, and it's like, Actually, I wasn't in my car Tuesday and I wasn't weeping, you know, so are there factual inaccuracies? If so, then, then you reject it as false. Another would be, does this person have a bad track record? Are they known to be unsound spiritually? Are they known to be in doctrinal error? 
or, or morally unreliable, or they have a history of false prophecy. Those would be giant red flags that would make me question things. Uh, the other would be, if you are solid and mature in the Lord, you, you've got a, a, good, a good walk with the Lord and a good history of discernment, if something's spoken and it bears witness with your spirit that the Holy Spirit comes on you as that word is spoken, or you have a deep affirmation witness in your spirit, that would, that would be of interest. Or if it confirms something that the Lord has previously spoken to you, then that would get my attention as well. That being said, I would never, ever make a decision for my future based on a prophetic word that God did not make real to my own heart. In other words, if someone says, the Lord showed me that you're going to be moving to the West Coast and I see you in California in the days ahead. And then three months later, out of the blue, I get an invitation to join a ministry team in California. That prophetic word will, will be in my mind. But unless I know in my heart that the Holy Spirit is calling me to move to California, I'm not going to do it based on that prophetic word. So in that case, there are words that you put on the shelf because you don't know either way. There is accuracy to it. But there are things about the future that are not clear. You put it on the shelf. And if it's really the Lord, it'll come back. The Lord will bear witness with your own heart. Or multiple people will speak those same words, and that will bring further confirmation. So again, there are ways to immediately eliminate it. Another thing is, if there are other prophetic people, and they say, we all hear the Lord saying the same thing, then that carries more weight, but still you have to know in your own heart that it's right and true and accurate because we each have a relationship with God by his spirit today. Hey, thank you for the question. It's certainly important for those of us who believe in these things for today. Let me say it again. Never make a decision based simply on a prophetic word that someone spoke unless you know in your own heart that it is true and right. That's how you make your decisions before God, the wisdom of the word, the wisdom of counsel, and the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, we've, we've been talking about this concept of paying forward, paying ahead. I was speaking at a, a church scheduled to be with them again in Vero Beach, a fine congregation there, and they, they have a, a portion of the mall that they use for their meetings, then they've got a fitness center next to it, and then a cafe, and so if you go in there, there's a menu, but there are no prices on the menu. No prices on the menu. So you go in there, and how much is this? Well, the last people, they paid forward for you. So order whatever you want to order. Go ahead. This way, people that don't have much money, they can be blessed. But you now are given the option to pay forward to the next. So whatever you want to pay for your meal, you're really paying for the next people that come in. And some are able to pay for multiple meals and others like, but I don't have anything. Hey, enjoy. Someone's paid ahead for you. So we're asking you to do that for the next listeners that we're going to reach on the radio, for the next listeners that we're going to reach in, in our various ways of getting this message out. If you've been blessed and we've poured into you, would you pay forward for the next? You say, well, how do I do that? Join our support team. A dollar a day. A dollar a day makes a massive difference because we have a growing army of supporters called torchbearers. And together we get this message out. We don't, we don't have some rich person underwriting us. We don't have some contracts that bring in all kinds of money. We pay for the airtime 
to reach people. So you're paying forward to the next generation of listeners. So to join our support team, go to askdrbrown.org, askdrbrown.org. Click on support and then monthly. But before you do it, I want you to see all the ways that we pour back into you because that remains our goal. We want to bless you, pour into you, edify you, strengthen you. So look at all the things that get poured back into you as you join our support team. AskDrBrown.org. Click on Donate. Thank you for becoming a torchbearer. And I love, love, love when I'm on the road and I run into someone or even at the airport, someone else to say, I'm a torchbearer. It just, it, it brightens my day because they've got a big smile and I'm thinking, oh, they're amazing things that are happening. We just got some incredible testimonies and, and you help make that happen. You're part of that. So thanks for joining our team. And Samuel in Atlanta, I can't bring you on the air for shortness of time, but when does life actually begin? I believe the case that says life begins at conception is the right case that we can make a biblical argument for it. The Bible certainly speaks of the humanity of the people within the womb. They are looked at as if they are individuals, as if they are people and not just a clump of cells. But having said that, I do believe scientifically we can argue that life begins at conception. And right from the start, something happens. When, when, when you bring together the, the union of the sperm and the egg, Something unique is formed right at that moment by God. And that's why we say life is sacred, beginning with conception. We got some really interesting and controversial topics we're going to tackle tomorrow, God willing, right here on The Line of Fire. Another program powered by the Truth Network.